I'm sure Pastor Tom won't mind. <laughs> John chapter 13. As we continue on in our, our study of the ultimate power of love over evil. The Apostle John, at the beginning of this chapter, more than any other gospel writer, at this point in, in, in Jesus' ministry, opens up his heart to us so personally. And he shows us a heart of love for his own. He loved them, he's, it says, until the end, unto the end. To the furthest extent that love can go is how he loves his followers, his people, his disciples. And he reveals this heart as he prepares to teach a tremendous lesson to his disciples as he's on his way to the cross. And we see a story, in a sense, not a, you know, not a fictional account. This is, this is an eyewitness account Yet through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God opens John's eyes to all of the little details and events in this particular place, at this particular time, with these particular disciples, including one that will be betray him. And Jesus does something that the apostles can't respond until Peter does. Jesus took off his outer garment and he girded himself with a servant's towel, a slave's towel. And he sat at the feet of his disciples, lowered himself. And as we pick up in verse 5 of our text, it says, After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but... Thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. 
neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. <coughs> Excuse me. Before we press on into the newer section of chapter 13 of John's Gospel, I want, I want to dig a little deeper. A little deeper into the meaning of Jesus washing of his disciples' feet. And especially the things that he told Peter in response to Peter's words and actions. We're certainly aware of the lesson Jesus taught them generally. But there were deeper issues. These disciples, for the most part, as we've already seen, were already jockeying for position in the kingdom they expected Jesus to bring about in overthrowing the Romans. Seems that James and John took the lead in that by coming to Jesus with their mother and saying to them, Lord, we want to sit at your right hand and on your left in the kingdom. But there was still a very important lesson to learn. And Jesus needed to demonstrate to them what true royalty was and would ever be. And I mention the word royalty here because if they're talking about serving in a kingdom, then we're dealing with royalty. But what is the royalty like in the kingdom of God as opposed to the royalty in, in the kingdom of man? So the demonstration that Jesus is to teach them about true royalty has to do with serving others. That's a totally different kind of kingdom than the kingdom of man, where the royalty is served. So that brings about then again the remembrance of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, when he said, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You want to be royalty in the kingdom of God? Then you need to know the royal law of love. The three things now that were the impetus for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet here in John chapter 13 and to demonstrate the significance of royal service and ministry were first of all that he knew that his hour had come to depart from this earth to the Father. This is clear in the first four verses. He knew that his hour had come to depart from this earth to the Father. In other words, he knew that he was about to die very, very shortly. Secondly, his motivation to show this and to demonstrate this lesson was that he loved his own. He loved his followers on earth. He loved those for whom he was ultimately responsible. He loved them enough to wash their feet no matter the humiliation or abasement. And, and, and thirdly, the third motivation for him to teach this lesson at this point in time was that he knew his enemy and that he was about to strike and betray him. He needed to act before the enemy struck. There are lessons now here for all of us. First of all, we need to know that the time is short. We need to know that the time is short now than ever before. Just as Jesus knew his time was short and he needed to act in demonstration of the love of God, we need to know the time is short so that we are acting in the love of God in this world. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. The time is short for us as believers in Jesus Christ in these last days. So what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be wearing the armor of light. We are supposed to be the children of light. We're supposed to be shining the light of Christ in this world. We're to wake up out of sleep. And I hate to say it, but a lot of people in the church are sleeping today. And most of the time, the reason why they're sleeping is because they're not being fed the word of God. 
Paul in Ephesians 5 verses 15 and 16 says, See then that you walk circumspectly or correct, uh, 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 carefully, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time. In other words, buy back the time. Make every opportunity of the time that you have because the days are evil. That should mean more to us today than, than ever before because of what we see happening in this world today. So we need, we need to know that the time is short and we need to act. It, with everything God has given us, we need to act. Secondly, we need to love those that he loves. Just as he loved his own and he loved them to the end, we need to continue to love those whom God has given us charge to love. Jesus himself will say in John 15 verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Continue in this very same love that the Father has given to you. And John, in 1 John chapter 3 verse 16, many, many years later, he would say, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is what Jesus was about to do. A few hours later from this Passover supper. We need to know the time is short. We need to know and to love those whom God has loved and to love with the love of God. And thirdly, we need to know that there is an enemy. We need to know that there's an enemy and that he's very active in these last days. And if that's the case, then we need to know what the scripture says about dealing with the enemy in the last days. Paul says, Ephesians, says in Ephesians 6 verses 10 and 11, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We cannot deal with the enemy's power in our own strength. We have to have the strength of the Lord who has already defeated the enemy, so that's a good thing to know. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of of the devil. And why do we need to stand against the wiles of the devil? Because Peter himself will tell us in 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9, he says, be sober, be serious, be vigilant, be watching, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. See, if we're, if we're not aware that there's an enemy that wants to devour you, what are we going to do? We're going to live passe lives. We're going to try to live comfortable lives. We're going to try to live complacent lives. But we can't do that as believers in Jesus Christ. We have too much, we, we have too much to live for. We have eternity to live for. But we need to live now in the way that the Lord tells us. So Peter goes on to say, whom resist steadfast in the faith. We need to resist the enemy steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're not the only ones. I mean, we know that others suffer a lot more than we do, but yet we still suffer if we stand for Christ. But before this royal service, so remember those three things. Remember that we need to know the time is short. We need to love with the love of God and love of Christ. And we need to know that there's an enemy. But remember this, greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Always stand upon that. But before this royal service and ministry can be demonstrated by the disciples and by us, there is to be a washing, there is to be a cleansing. Another way of putting this is, before a person can serve the Lord Jesus Christ, they must become a part of Christ. And before that person can become a part of Christ, they must be washed and cleansed by Jesus himself. In fact, as we look at this situation, this scenario given to us in verses 6 through 11, this helps us to understand that. It says in verse 6, Then cometh he to Simon Peter. Jesus comes to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? I, I want to tell you, Peter is not being arrogant here. Peter is not trying to show off. Dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, 
but thou shalt know hereafter. You're not going to know with any kind of understanding what I'm doing, but you're going to know very shortly, very, very shortly. And Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. You will never wash my feet as long as I'm alive. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I know that we oftentimes say, just pour the water all over me, Lord. But he was very, very, very specific. Then wash my hands. Wash my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not save needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. And therefore said he, You are not all clean. So the emphasis, the emphasis in Peter's response to Jesus washing his feet was on the pronouns thou and my. Peter was shocked. He was not being arrogant. He was not trying to show off among the other disciples. He was shocked, maybe even horrified. That the one that he had confessed as the Son of God, if you remember, at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the questions, who do men say that I am? And they gave a few responses, and then he asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one that responded, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus told him, it wasn't flesh that gave you that the Father. So he's horrified that the one that he had confessed as the Son of God should even dare wash his feet. It was unthinkable to Peter. The others may have been thinking the same, but Peter would have been the one to express what the others were only thinking. But in Jesus' response to Peter, he emphasized the same pronouns in a sense. I and thou, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shall know hereafter. These are emphatic words, by the way, in the Greek. So the significance, what we need to understand here is that the significance was not in the ritual. The significance was not in the washing of the feet it was in the spiritual meaning or meaning of the greater humiliation and degradation which would take place in a few hours. And still Peter was unyielding. He said, thou shalt never wash my feet. In effect, what Jesus tells Peter is that unless he washes his sins away by his atoning death on the cross... Peter would have no relationship whatsoever with Jesus. You see, it isn't the washing of the feet. It isn't the ritual that Jesus did what he did. It was lowering himself. It was humiliating himself at the feet of the disciples to show them why he came. The Apostle John, writing the gospel, had certainly learned this lesson and he kept it with him throughout his long life. You know, John was the the last of the disciples to die years and years later. And God had a perfect time for him to write the book of Revelation, nearly a hundred years old. And it is in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, that John writes, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, listen to the next phrase in verse 5, unto him that loved us 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And even though John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, I, I, I could just think that John had that picture of the, of the Passover supper when he, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about Jesus having loved his own and loved them unto the end to bow himself at their feet and to love them by washing their feet and showing them there's a greater washing coming. There's a greater cleansing about to take place. Unto him that loved us, John said, he washed my feet. Unto him that loved us and washed us, not just my feet, but he washed us from our sins in his own blood. A few hours later, And he would continue to remember these particular issues. When he writes in 1 John 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. And this is written to the church. This is written to you and to me. You don't have to be bathed again You've been bathed in the blood of Christ, but every day we can bring our sins because our feet touch this world each and every day, and this world needs to be cleansed each and every day from our feet. He cleanses us from, our, from all sin. And it would be on Calvary that the blood of Jesus Christ would provide for all those who would believe with a once-for-all cleansing from sin, that complete bath, as it were. But in our daily walk through this world, we all become defiled to a certain extent. Our feet which come in contact with the world needs that daily cleansing from the sin of the world. The disciples would not grasp these truths until much later. And once again, John states in understanding now, he states in 1 John 1, 9, just two verses later, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet Jesus would say at the end of verse 10, and you are clean, but not all. There was one there that evening at the Passover supper that would never plunge into the fountain's crimson flood. As I was thinking of this one disciple, I had that thought of, of that one great old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that, beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. How close was Judas to the one who would die for him, but never plunge into the fountain filled with Emmanuel's blood? Judas Iscariot was the only one who knew Jesus was referring to him. He was the only one. The other disciples had no clue. 
They had no clue it was Judas who had turned his back on the Messiah, who had turned his back on the Savior, who had turned his back on the Lamb of God, ensnared as he was by the wicked one. Never to repent, though he sorrowed. Never to repent. Never to be cleansed. The other disciples probably never even considered Judas, thinking that, well, you know, Jesus made him the secretary treasurer. He he made him the guy that takes care of all of the funds. He obviously trusts him. He can't be him. So it's got to be one of us. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 23, when Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And I mentioned last week, what the, what the dinner arrangement was around the table and how close Judas was to the same bowl that he would dip his bread in with Jesus. For Jesus to say, he who dips his bread with my, in my bowl will betray me. But did the disciples hear? Did they listen? Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. Go to the cross, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. They're inquiring among themselves, but it got even deeper in Mark's gospel. In Mark 14, verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say one, or to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, is it I? Lord, is it me? Am I going to betray you? How close are we each and every day of asking that question? Is it I? I hope and pray we never have to ask that question. But Judas knew very well the reason for Jesus' veiled words. As John explains in verse 11, For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, You are not all clean. Judas says, I know he's talking about me. How could Judas not know? Having seen the miracles that Jesus performed, having seen Jesus bring sight to the blind, bring life to limbs, heal the sick, raise the dead, preach with the authority that could only come from heaven, and not know that Jesus meant him when he said, you are not all clean. Was it for fear of what the others would do or say that kept Judas silent? Was this another opportunity given by Jesus to the betrayer for repentance, although we know that he had to be betrayed and and Jesus knew he would be betrayed? And maybe I say that this is another opportunity given by Jesus to the betrayer for repentance, more for our benefit than anything else. That Jesus always gives opportunity to the furthest extent of his love until it's too late. Why do we wait so long to respond to the love of Jesus Christ? It is amazing to think that for Jesus' love for Judas, he kept this knowledge a bit longer for love of Judas. But now would have to come the declaration concerning humility. You see, last week we dealt with the demonstration. In other words, Jesus quietly, silently, a slave 
washing the feet of each disciple's feet. But now comes the declaration. Now comes the explanation of this humility. Now comes the teaching. Verse 12 says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, in other words, he got up, he put his, he put his outer garment back on, and he went and sat down at the table again. It says he had taken his garments, was set down again, and he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Good teacher always asks good questions. Amen? That's why questions are so important for us to really consider when Jesus asks, asks them. Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. Now, I'm going to give you a quick little hint here that it isn't the washing of the feet that is the significance. It is the lowering of Jesus to show us humility that is. But keep that in mind. We get the understanding of that more in verse 15 when he says, For I have given you an example. An example. That you should do as I have done to you. That you should do what? Wash the feet or lower yourself. You see where we're going with this? He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Here's the context. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. To us, we, we would call this the application. This is the application of the teaching. How much, listen, how much of the word of God do we listen to? How much do we read? How much do we study? How much do we compile notes about knowing what the Lord would have us to do and then not do them? Sad to say, that happens a lot. You see, it isn't so much about being a sponge that soaks up as much information in and about the Bible as is possible. It is about that sponge being squeezed out by applying the things of God to our lives. The problem with being just a sponge that soaks up knowledge is that that knowledge can and will only puff us up. And there can be no humility in that, only pride. The Apostle Paul, in teaching about touching things offered unto idols, begins this particular lesson in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 by saying this about knowledge. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. But then he says immediately, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, or agape love, edifies. Love builds up. Knowledge puffeth up. Is all, if, if all we're concerned about is getting more and more into our heads so we can be smarter than everybody else or so that we can show off before everybody else, that's not the point. He says knowledge puffeth up, but charity builds up. Charity edifies. The knowledge is emptied out in its application to love by action, love by doing. And if any man think he have, if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. That's the best way of putting that is none of us ever know everything. None of us should ever be boasting about being know-it-alls. Because we can't know it all. Only Jesus knows it all. But notice verse 3, but if any man love God, 
You see, what is our knowledge all about? If it doesn't bring us to the knowledge of God's love for us. If any man love God, the same, that same person is known of God, of him. Because he knows your heart. He knows what you empty yourself out of each and every day. If, if you empty yourself out. If you squeeze the sponge. But here's the question. Is the application about washing feet? Now, so, now some churches to this day, and, and this has been going on since about the fourth century But some churches to this day still have foot washing services. But that wasn't what Jesus was aiming for his disciples to do. Let me once again interject what we learned last time, and that is that there should have been someone washing their feet as they entered into the house or into the home that they were going to have this meal at. Normally it was a custom that a slave of, of the owner of the house would be there to wash the feet of the people coming in. But nobody had done that. Jesus knew that that was going to happen. Jesus had it all set up for him to be the one who would bow down. So it isn't about washing feet. That's not the application. It wasn't what Jesus was aiming for his disciples to know and to do. He was teaching them to be bond slaves. He was teaching them to be servants. He was teaching them to be doulos. There is a simple way to know that foot washing is not for today. First of all, we ask the question, was it taught and practiced by Jesus? Second, do we find examples of foot washing in the book of Acts? Third, do we find teaching on foot washing in the epistles, which are the letters written to the church by the apostles? Now, this is a standard set of tests for anything in the New Test, in, in, in the Gospels, I should say, for it to be considered doctrine for the church to be done. These are the tests. Did Jesus teach and practice it? Did, uh, do we find any examples of it being done in the book of Acts? And are there any mentions of it in the uh, epistles? So we see foot washing here, yes, in John 13. Would you all agree? See? Okay. See? No? See? See. Okay. We see foot washing here, but not really commanded by Jesus. Even though some people, do, some people would say, well, wait a minute. It's as you see me do, right? Let's try to find that one verse. If I then, your Lord, master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. And, and, and again, you know, we say, well, see, it's right there. He teaches it. But it's not commanded. And again, I'll get back to how this all works out. So we see foot washing, but not really a commandment, given that they must wash feet. What he goes on to say is, I've given you an example. How many of you remember when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer? Did he say, T, I want you to pray this prayer? No, what Jesus said was, pray in this manner. Pray in this manner. Our Father. Know who he is and what he's all about. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be hallowed. May it be glorified. May it be praised. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, meet our every need in this life. So pray in this manner. But what do people do? They pray the prayer. 
And it's a beautiful prayer. I'm not saying anything about the prayer not being a beautiful prayer. But Jesus did say, pray in this manner. And he, here he says, I've given you an example. But the real issue is what I'm doing here at your feet. And foot washing is just one example of serving others in the love of God. So, there are no teachings on foot washing in the, in, any, in the book of Acts. We don't see that happening. And there are no teachings on foot washing in any of the apostles' letters to the church. I, I will mention one little place where it's mentioned, but I'll, I'll explain that when we get there. Now, concerning two other things, baptism, communion. Let's use those as examples here, using this same frame of, of, of questioning. Concerning baptism, Jesus practiced it. Jesus taught it. And he commanded us to be baptized. Therefore, uh, the examples are in the book of Acts of baptism. And there are teachings in the epistles about baptism. So is baptism something that is commanded to do? Yes. And then, of course, there is communion. The same thing. Jesus participated in communion. Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. It is mentioned in the scriptures, uh, in the book of Acts, as one of the things that we in the church are supposed to be doing, and then it is written about in the epistles as well. So the same goes for communion. But let me add one more thing to this thought about what we are supposed to do as believers in Jesus Christ in the church and what we're not supposed to do. Turn to Matthew chapter 6 for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 16. I want to make sure that you get there. After he has just taught the disciples about the manner of prayer... Listen to what he says. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. It's, it's, it's like this. You've got to look up here. I mean, it's like, what are you doing? I'm fasting. Looking just like all disfigured, you know, because you're like to be looking to be sad, you know. I'm sad. I'm fasting unto the Lord, you know. And Jesus says, "Don't be like them." Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. You know what their reward is? People go, "Oh, he's fasting. Oh, what a holy man. What a holy person." There's their there's their reward. The applause of men. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head. Brill cream, put it on, comb your hair. Ladies, you know, hair dry. Get all prettied up. Anoint your head. Wash your face. That thou appear not unto men to fast but unto thy Father which is in secret. What does he see? He sees the heart. But unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. Why do I bring this up? Because sometimes we have these services, you know, all these things where people get in line and they just, they just want to be seen, you know, they go through these rituals to be seen of men. No matter what it might be. Ashes on the forehead. And, 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 and honestly, you could actually use anything that we even are supposed to do. But it's in the manner that you do them. See, that's the point, in the manner that you do them. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever it is that you do, do all to the glory of God. Always to the glory of God. Never to be seen of men. 
Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. What you do, you do unto God. Now together here we are, we know, uh, we worship together as unto the Lord. But we've been here long enough to know that we're not here to impress you. And we can't even impress God. He just wants to see a, a joyful heart coming to worship him. Because he knows us. And I'll tell you what, I'm not up here to impress you either. I want you to see him. I want you to look to him. I want you to trust in him. I want you to live for him. I want you to praise him. I want you to serve him. I want you to love him. And we do all of that by lowering ourselves at each other's feet and serve each other. So getting back to the issue at hand, Jesus said in verse 13, you call me master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. 31 times in the Gospels, Jesus was addressed as master. Didaskalos, master. He referred to himself that way eight times. Rabbi was, was a very close equivalent in those days to the word master because it was used by students of their teacher. He says, you call me master. He says, that's good because that's what I am. You call me Lord, kurios. The, the word kurios simply means owner. Is God your owner? If he is, then call him, call him Lord. Lord was the, the, the word that expressed authority and lordship. Now, let me just say, and this, I'm not saying anything bad about this. Honestly not, because I do it myself. But we, we oftentimes refer to Jesus many times by name, especially in prayer, oftentimes using expressions of endearment. Oh, dear Jesus. Oh, wonderful Jesus. Lovely Jesus. Beautiful Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it's a wonderful name, isn't it? It's a wonderful name to have on our lips each and every day. I encourage you to use the name of Jesus and call out, out to him uh, because that is a precious name. I, I can tell you this, having come out of the Jesus movement back in the, in the early 70s, I mean, Jesus was all, that was the name. That, that's the name we wanted to get out to everybody. You know, This is the name. It, it, it isn't Stalin or it isn't Lenin or it isn't John Lennon. I mean, it's Jesus. You understand? That's the, that's the name. Y'all, are, are you with, awake with me here this morning? Isn't the name of Jesus a beautiful name? All right, good. I just want to make sure that you love the name of Jesus. Okay. Because I love the name of Jesus. And it's, it's a name, uh, you know, Jesus will never be the one to say, hey, don't waste, you know, don't, don't, don't uh, overuse my name. <laughs> it's a wonderful name. It means God is salvation. But now let me ask you this. But do we call him Lord and Master? Because he is Lord. We belong to him. He is master. He is our teacher. You know, I searched the Gospels quite extensively uh, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John only to find... I was searching about the usage of Jesus' name, the name of Jesus... First of all, by the disciples. They didn't call him by his name. Anytime they addressed Jesus, they called him Lord or Master. And the same went for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or you know, anyone that was close to Jesus. They all called him Lord. They all called him Master. So I searched to see that <laughs> only evil spirits addressed Jesus by name. Uh, that's not to say anything about what I was just talking about using the name of Jesus, okay? But only the evil spirits address Jesus by name, the exception being blind Bartimaeus. Because blind Bartimaeus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth there coming into the city, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. The disciples, Mary, Martha, and the others called him Master and Lord. Interestingly enough, the only time that Judas Iscariot appears to be speaking directly to Jesus 
He doesn't call him by name or by title. Interesting. This is just an interesting little side thing, okay? But I think it applies. Because in John 12, going back to the last chapter, in verses 4 through 8, there when Mary had broken that bottle of expensive perfume upon the head of Jesus. In verse 4 it says, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And then John adds, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. And notice in verse 7, then said Jesus. So it's not a stretch to say that he may have been talking directly to Jesus, but never calls him Jesus or never says Lord or Master. He just says, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence? And Jesus answered, Jesus said, let her alone. So who's he speaking to? Judas. Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. And I wonder how, how striking that statement to Judas was against the day of my bearing as she kept this what have you kept 30 pieces of silver so Jesus going back to the supper Jesus said if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now this act of foot washing stands as an example. Remember the next verse. Jesus said this is an example. This act of foot washing stands as an example for all kinds of acts of self-denying love. And once again the focus was on Jesus lowering himself in the position of a servant. Not the obligation of just washing feet. It was indeed a call to loving care for others that regards no task too boring, too tedious, too menial. No service too great for us as believers in Jesus Christ to be at the feet of those who Jesus loves. Nothing should stand in the way of us ministering and serving in humility to all. There is only one other reference, as I said, to washing feet as a custom in welcoming, in welcoming someone to a home. It was when Paul was dealing with, with uh, widows with Timothy. And he writes in 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years, which is sixty years, Old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she hath washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the, the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. That was just one of every other thing that was, uh, that was to be done. Washing the saints' feet would be that she was welcoming saints into her home and she was washing them just as the custom was. So this was not an example of saying that, that Feet need to be washed now it's, uh, because that's, that was mentioned in, in a number of other things, which is what Jesus was saying. I have given you an example, verse 15, that you should do as I have done to you. The washing of the feet? No, the lowering of myself before you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, and as I said, this is the context. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, if you see your Lord lower himself, you lower yourself. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus took the lowest place, the place of the slave. He performed a, a menial task that none of the disciples was willing to accept and do. He did it out of pure love. 
Is our dignity too cherished by us that we can't possibly minister lovingly to others in the very same manner as our Lord and Master Jesus? Peter saw his Lord in in the garment of a slave at his own feet, clothed with humility, about to take his his place and our place on the cross of Calvary in total humiliation, naked before all the world to see, if anything, covered in the blood that would cover our sins. And Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you keep soaking up knowledge. Is that what it says? Good morning. Happy are you if you do them. The world can't see any happiness in taking such a humble, humiliating place. The world can't see it. And yet the scriptures teach us that happiness does not consist in knowing. Happiness consists in doing. Happy are ye. These are the words of Jesus. Happy are ye if you do them. I want to close with a statement made in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, to illustrate this very point. In the life of Jesus himself, in the death of Jesus himself, in the sacrifice of Jesus himself, listen to what it says. Verse 1, Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In the context here of a race, he says, Jesus is the starting line and the finish line of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And now he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's even greater than happiness. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The the joy of the Lord at that moment, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, was that three days later he would rise from the dead. And be alive. And ever to be alive having conquered sin and death and the enemy forever. For us. That's joy. And the joy came from doing. It wasn't Jesus thinking about going to the cross. It wasn't Jesus learning all he could about going to the cross. It was Jesus going to the cross for you, for you, for me. Happy are you if you do these things. Happy are you. If you know these things, see, we do need to know This is why we are encouraged to study God's Word. This is why we need to stay in God's Word. This is why we need to stand strong in the Lord and in the power of His mind. This is why we need to keep looking up because our redemption draws near. This is why we need to keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in darkness. This is why we need to keep being the light to the world. Why? Because we know these things. And if we know these things... You want the blessing, then happy are you if you do them. And quit letting others do them for you. You do them. 
and blessed will you be. Amen? Let's pray.